Am I muted? No, I'm unmuted. Okay. Sorry, guys. Thanks for your patience here. So he doesn't know the outside world. Long story short, Morgan Freeman's character gets a job where he starts working at a grocery store. And this grocery store is a place that's kind of part of a work release program. So other inmates have been through there once they've been released. And he's sacking groceries. He's kind of learning what the outside world is again, because he's been away from it for so long. So he's sacking groceries. He's talking to people. He's kind of in this new stage in his life. And uh, at one point, we watch him sacking some groceries. He's putting fruits and vegetables into this brown paper sack. And he looks over his shoulder and he sees his boss standing there, the supervisor there at the supermarket. And uh, he looks over at his boss and he says, hey, boss, can I take a restroom break? And his boss calls him over to him. And he says kind of quietly like, hey, you don't have to ask me every time you need to use the restroom. Just, just go. It's okay. And what happens in that moment is Morgan Freeman's character realizes he has had to learn a way of life where he has to ask permission to do anything. When he was in prison, he had to ask if he could go use the restroom. When he was in prison, he had to ask the guards if it was okay for him to walk over there or do this or do that. He's become so accustomed to this way of life that any other way of life just feels weird or foreign to him. He's got to unlearn that process of asking permission for everything. There are things that all of us have had to unlearn throughout our lives. You have to unlearn being completely dependent on your parents at a certain point. If you want to enter into adulthood, you have to unlearn kind of the, the self-focus of, of single life. If you want to get married, you have to unlearn all kinds of things. And what we're looking at today is a moment in the history of the people of Israel where God gives them a gift. And the gift is the Ten Commandments. Now, most people in the world outside of the church would say the Ten Commandments is not a gift. That's a bunch of archaic rules. That's why I don't like religion. And what I want us to look at today is the beauty of the Ten Commandments, the first part of the Ten Commandments, which Holly read for us a moment ago, that is about unlearning a very negative behavior, unlearning a way of life that the people of Israel learned very deeply when they were an enslaved people in Egypt. So we're going to talk about that through two different headings. It's just a two-section sermon today. The first section is unlearning enslavement, and the second section is unlearning false worship unlearning enslavement, unlearning false worship. And I'm gonna tell you what the discussion question is at the top so you can kind of get ready for it. The question that you'll get to spend some time talking about your breakout rooms is, what do you need to unlearn? What do we as a people need to unlearn? What are these behaviors and patterns that God just wants us to let go of so that we can fully enter into his freedom? So think about that while we talk. The first section is unlearning enslavement, unlearning enslavement. Now, I've shown you a map the last couple of weeks uh, that kind of illustrates the journey of Israel because of some technical issues. I didn't have time to bring it up today. But if you remember, the people of Israel have been in captivity. They are set free through a miraculous series of events. They cross the Red Sea, and now they're venturing slowly but surely toward the promised land. It's going to take a long time to get there, but they're on a journey. What we haven't talked a lot about is what was it like for them when they were in Egypt? Was it a good situation? Were they, you know, somewhat happy and then God just kind of moved them along? Far from it. They had basic things. They had food. They had water. They had shelter. They had kind of the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But it was all provided for them by their Egyptian masters. It was provided for them by people that they didn't love, that were part of a different culture, they were not in a situation where they could flourish. 
They had no rights. There was no political recourse for things that would happen to them. There was no justice if one of the Egyptians decided to rise up and do something to them or take their life. They were forced into terrible labor. And they were really in a place where over time, and we've seen this, the, the enslavement starts to rub off on them in such a way where they just get used to this life that is so oppressive, just like Morgan Freeman's character did in the Shawshank Redemption. So at a certain point, God sets them free, and then he can't just set them free and say, go have fun. He sets them free and gives them something new to focus on. And that newness is formed in this thing called the covenant. The covenant, man, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the covenant. It is one of the most important themes in all the Old Testament. But I'm just going to read this brief section from Exodus 19. This is the chapter before the one that Holly read for us today. Exodus chapter 19, the title of this chapter is The Covenant and the Law. The people are gathered at Mount Sinai. God's about to give them the Ten Commandments, but before he does that, he gives them this vessel into which they can pour their life called the covenant. Then Moses went up to God. This is verse three. The Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember, I blew those guys up. We're out of there. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant. That word covenant in the Hebrew is berit, and it's used 287 times in the Old Testament. It's a really important word in the study of the Old Testament. And it basically means a treaty, an agreement between two different parties, right? So if you were going to have an armed conflict with another party, another nation, and you needed to settle it, you would form a covenant on the other side of that conflict. And there's a series of covenants in the Old Testament, and these are so important, you guys. I wish we could spend more time on them. But God is so faithful to his people by making a covenant, which is an agreement between God and people for a purpose that God intends. He makes a covenant with Noah. He says, Noah, I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm, I'm going to protect humanity from total destruction. With Abraham, he makes a covenant and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your children are going to be like the sand on the seashore. He, he promises to raise up this great people from Abraham. And now with Moses, he says to the people of Israel, I will be your God. You will be my people. We will have this living relationship together. Now, why does this matter? Why would God give this to God's people? As they have left behind their identity as an enslaved people, they're entering into a new season that is, that is being formed. It's kind of amorphous right now. And when God says to them, you're going to be a part of my covenant, he gives them this place, this, this safe setting into which they can truly pour their lives out. We most often hear the word covenant when we go to a wedding or in the before times when we would go to a wedding. Covenant's one of the strongest themes in like the talk that I give when I officiate weddings. And I share this quote from W.H. Auden uh, in my wedding talk, and I'll share it with you guys today. W.H. Auden, the poet, once wrote, covenants foster healthy use of time and will. They are always more interesting than romance, no matter how passionate. I'll say that again. Covenants foster healthy use of time and will. They are always more interesting than romance, no matter how passionate. 
And I love how he blows up this stereotype of, of marriage. The stereotype is you fall passionately in love with someone and then you devote your life to them and you get excited about your life together and you're just rocking and rolling for the next 50 years, right? Well, if you're married, you know the truth. It's not that easy. It's actually a lot of work. And what covenants do is they focus us. They give us a target that we get to hit rather than having a multiplicity of targets. They give us a focal point. They give us something that we can live and breathe into. A covenant gives you the ability to say, I don't have to worry about what's happening over there. I don't have to worry about whether I should be with someone else. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. In a covenant, you get to be safe. You get to lay down this competition, this constantly having to prove yourself. A covenant is a beautiful place where people can truly rest. So how do you unlearn enslavement? How do the people of Israel unlearn this, this oppression that they lived through for so many years? You unlearn enslavement by entering into a covenant, by taking seriously the covenant invitation of God through Jesus Christ. And the most practical way to live this out, if you want to actually live into this, you have to unlearn false worship. That's point two, unlearning false worship. This is where we're going to get really, really practical. The focus of the covenant is the worship of God. A covenant between God and people is not about the people, it's about God. And so let's talk about what shape that takes by using the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments given make sense only in the context of a covenant. So God says this in, in uh, Exodus 20. I'm reading a different translation than what Holly read. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One God, not many gods. Guess what the, what the Egyptians taught to the Israelites? Many gods. As many gods as you can name. And we know this because archaeological evidence shows us the, is the Egyptians had so many gods. They had buildings devoted to gods. They had temples. They had artwork. They had all this stuff. And it was all about this multiplicity of gods. Guys, honestly, that sounds exhausting to me. That sounds like decision fatigue over and over and over again. And the point I'm trying to make is that the covenant gives us a singular point of focus, which we need. Now, why does God have to tell the people that he's inviting them into worshiping him only? Why does he tell it to them now? Didn't, why should, he should have told them that at the beginning of all this, right? He's telling it to them now because there's something coming that is going to be very disruptive to their life together. He tells them this because just a few chapters from now, chapter 32 of Exodus, the people are going to turn their backs on God. They're going to make this golden calf, this false idol. And they're going to worship it. While Moses is up on the mountain communing with God, the people are looking at their watches going, this is taking too long. We got to make our own God. God knows that's coming. God's not dumb. And so God starts to lay the groundwork for the people to have the opportunity to come out of that moment of pagan worship and say, look, I'm going to give you all pathway through this. God loves us so much that he has given us beautiful gifts like freedom. But he loves us too much to let us just run rough all over the place with the freedom. Did you know that human beings are the only piece of creation that can turn our backs on God? I mean, look outside your window. The grass in your yard cannot turn its back on God. The bird that is singing a beautiful springtime song cannot all of a sudden say, you know what? I don't want to do it God's way anymore. I'm going to do it my way. They don't have that ability. 
only human beings have the ability to say, God, I don't think you got this right. I'm going to go this way. And we do it to our pain and to our peril. And God talks about this at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I'll read a little bit further in, in chapter 20. I'll start in verse 4. God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol, a false god, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who keep my commandments. We all make idols. We do. John Calvin, the great uh, church, his, the church, the great church reformer, said that our hearts are idol factories. We make idols like we're pushing them out on a conveyor belt. We just make them and make them and make them. Now, most people, when they hear that quote, when they think about idols, they go, that's not me. Like, okay, Travis, like you talk about making a golden calf and pagan worship. I didn't do any of that this morning. Like, no, like this doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm a good, you know, church going person. I, I think I've got this figured out. And I would just gently challenge you, friend, and say, I don't think you do. The practical application step here is to identify your idols. Identify your idols. Identify the things that you would most revolve your life around if you hadn't heard of this God given to us in Jesus Christ. Great way to learn how to identify your idols. Ask yourself, what do I daydream about? When I'm off on my own, when I'm driving somewhere, when I'm on a walk, where does my mind kind of drift? What do you daydream about? William Temple, one of the archbishops in England once wrote, religion is what you do with your solitude. Religion is what you do with your solitude. What do you do with your solitude, church? What do you daydream about? Another way to ask this question in our day is, what's in your search history on your web browser that you wouldn't be super proud to admit is there? What's in your search history? Not everything in your search history is going to be an idol, but it's a pretty good indicator of things that we have chosen to focus our attention. So is your search history looking for a new job because you're kind of tired of the one you got? Is your search history shopping for different dating apps and trying to figure out which one's going to best fit you right now? This is a big one right now. Are you bringing up those real estate apps every single moment to look for another possibility? It's exhausting, you guys. I get it. I've been there. It's, man, that's an idol that we can make as big as we want. Is it your body? Is it the next workout routine or the next diet? Is it shopping for stuff that you really don't need, but it's kind of fun to get a package? None of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when we maximize their influence in our lives, when they so pervade our thoughts that they become what we daydream about, that's when it's become an idol. I'll just say very candidly, one of my idols is acceptance. It's a relational idol. If I feel like I've had a conversation with someone and I didn't say something quite right, or maybe I offended them or something, I will sort of marinate on that and kind of go like, oh, I wish I would have said that better. I wonder if I can like send a text and kind of straighten that out. And that all comes from years in my childhood of being kind of relationally pushed away, abandoned a bit, bullied, certainly. These are things that I just carry with me. And I know I have an idol of acceptance. 
And it's a sneaky, slippery, pernicious idol. So what's yours? And I'm not going to ask you to share that in your breakout rooms. I'm not. But I am going to ask you this. What do you need to unlearn? What's a behavior or a thought pattern or practice related to that idol that you just need to stop? So the first step is to identify your idols. If you uh, are still kind of looking for a pathway into this, read the temptation story of Jesus. It's in Luke chapter four. It's in uh, Matthew chapter four, I believe. Read the temptation narrative of Jesus. You will see the devil trying to put idols onto Jesus. And every time Jesus says, no, thanks. I don't want that. So identify your idols. And then the second step, church, is to remember the covenant. Remember this beautiful place where you belong, this relationship where you can feel safe and you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Jesus said to his disciples when they were gathered at the communion table the night before he was betrayed, I'm going to make a new covenant and it'll be in my blood. It'll be on that cross. It'll be for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's a new covenant. It's a new agreement. And it's where you can be safe and home forever. So have you entered into that covenant? Have you reminded yourself lately of the goodness of the gospel that Jesus Christ, by his grace alone, gives us a place to belong in the covenant? And we didn't earn it, and we didn't deserve it, and we can't lose it because he's given it to us. Have you remembered that? Friends, our idols are sneaky, but our God wants us to name them and get away from them and to replace them with the truth of Jesus Christ. We see God doing that for the people of Israel. Would you invite God to do that in your life today? Jesus, help me unlearn my selfishness. Help me break away from that. Jesus, help me unlearn my arrogance, my needing to be right all the time. Jesus, help me when I go from zero to 60, when I'm mad at my kids. I got to unlearn that behavior. Friends, what do you need to unlearn? That's what we're going to go and talk about in our breakout rooms. And you can be as bold as you want to be. You can kind of just say, you know what? This hits close to home and, and my heart just kind of needs to hold on to this. Today. What do you need to unlearn? I would say one of the things that I anticipate us needing to unlearn as a church is being around other people. And, and once, you know, we're through this stage of the pandemic, may it be so, may we all get to the place where we feel safe again through vaccinations, through all this other stuff. We are going to need to be together and see one another and welcome each other in Jesus Christ. And we need to unlearn the isolation that we have all gone through this last year. It's going to take time. I'm not saying we're going to throw out our safety measures or do anything foolish. We're going to take this at a measured pace. But church, join me in praying that we would unlearn our isolation so that we can be a people who are united and physically present with one another in the near future. I long for that. I hope you do too. But it's going to take unlearning those patterns for us to get there. And we can only ask the Holy Spirit for that so that we do it in a way that honors people, meets them where they're at, and carries us into a future that is bright and good. So as you go into your breakout rooms, there's two questions that will pop up in the chat. The first is just a warm up, like how was your week? Where did you experience the presence of God this week? It is okay to say, you know what? I don't know that I got to experience much of the Lord this week. That's okay. Just be honest. Then the second question is, what do I need to unlearn? Or what have I unlearned in the past? Tell a story about something where you went, you know, 
I thought I had that kind of figured out. And then I had to totally unlearn it and start over again. We've all been there. We've all had to do it. But my hope and my prayer is that in your breakout rooms, you'll encourage each other and share the good news of Jesus Christ with each other so that we can continue to unlearn and be safe in the covenant God has given to us. Would you join me as we pray? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for your word. I pray, Lord, that everything that we've been able to discuss today that is of you would be honoring to you and anything that is not of you, would you quickly tear it down? Father, convict us about our idols, about the things we daydream about. Move us from disruption into a place of transformation and repentance and renewal. Remind us of the good, good news of the gospel. We need you. We ask this in your great name. So go ahead and click the breakout rooms button in the bottom of your screen.